When I started as a mayor, there were only two streets in Mechelen that organized street festivities that brought the neighbors together. Now it's more than 100. And if you ask people why at that time we didn't trust each other, there was a negativity, blaming all the time. And now, because it's turned around, now you see that trust in citizenship and in your neighbor has grown enormously in Mechelen. We, we try to measure that in every city. It was the lowest in Mechelen. 20 years ago, now it's the highest. And also appreciation of people with an other cultural background. It was very low because people didn't feel at home, but now it's very high. So you see that one element, it's not the only one, that's one element, is important. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Over the past week, many of us have been rightly obsessed with the images that emerged on Sunday from Brasilia. The strange, grotesque carnival of Bolsonaristas, supporters of the former president Jair Bolsonaro, cosplaying American rioters, producing a kind of remake of the nightmarish images that we all remember from January 6th, 2021. The big question here is how to make sense of the significance of these events, of how these events fit into the broader story of a rise of populism and the likely future of a country like Brazil. So let's take a step back. In a strange way, these events are actually downstream from a piece of positive news. If somebody had told me two or three years ago that Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro would both be removed from office at the first opportunity for free and fair elections, I would have been delighted. I would have deeply rejoiced. At the same time, these insurrections also demonstrate that even the best piece of news is somewhat limited in import, that even when you are able to vote populists out of office in these elections, they don't disappear. And this is something that we should know on the basis of the history of populism in other countries, from Italy with Salvador Berlusconi to Peru with Alberto Fujimori. We have seen again and again that populists who lose elections are able to retain a significant amount of power in the political system and to come very close to winning back power, as Keiko Fujimori did in Peru, or even come back into government as Silvio Berlusconi did on a number of occasions. The kinds of attacks we've seen in Brazil are dangerous and very depressing. Ransacking the heart of democracy is significant in itself. But the real threat to Brazilian democracy does not appear to be from a public revolt, from the kind of grotesque carnival we saw last Sunday. It remains at the ballot box. It remains the fact that Brazil is a deeply divided country in which 49% of people voted for Bolsonaro's re-election, in which a very ideologically heterogeneous coalition will need to govern very effectively overcoming corruption, overcoming an economic crisis in order to ensure that Bolsonaro or one of his sons or some other far-right demagogue don't come back and win power in a legitimate way through elections four years from now. Now, to understand those stakes in Brazil and a lot about the nature of Brazilian 
our politics and culture at this moment, I heartily recommend you the last episode of this podcast recorded a few weeks ago before the turn of the new year in which Tabata Amaral, a really interesting and inspiring young congresswoman in Brazil, lays out the broader political situation. My guest today is Bart Sommers. Bart is a minister in the Flemish government and has for many years been the mayor of Mechelen, a Belgian city close to Brussels. While he was the mayor of Mechelen, he won the World Mayor Prize in recognition for the very difficult job he did in the city, which is really at the heart of our conversation. And that is that this mid-sized city of about 100,000 people had been transformed very quickly by immigration. And there was deep tensions between the long-term residents of the city and the newcomers. Far-right political parties were gaining in the vote very quickly in the city. And Bart, as a young mayor, came in and tried to figure out what to do. When we first met, uh, Bart had just read my last book, The Great Experiment, and was saying, it's interesting, the book helps give me theoretical language for what I've been doing. That was a kind way of saying that he did concretely what I was thinking about in abstract. So there's lots of resonance between his work as a politician and my work as a writer. I've learned a tremendous amount from him and from this conversation. I hope you shall too. Bart Somers, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. So you're a minister now, but you became the mayor of Mechelen a good number of years ago. And the way that you thought about how to deal with what was at the time a very difficult situation was really interesting to me when we met a few months ago in New York and talked about it. When you became mayor, what was Mechelen like? You could say Mechelen is one of the hundreds of medium-sized, rather small Western European cities that went through a very big transformation during the 80s and the 90s due to migration, which was new to my country. In a short period of time, it became from, let's say, a monocultural city to a diverse, even a super diverse city. And local politicians didn't know at that time what to do with it. So the transformation of the city was, of course, very strong. You saw that middle-class people, when they could, they left. They didn't like the idea of living in a diverse city. There was not a good integration process. So it was a segregated city, in fact. And the more the middle-class left, poverty and poorer people came in. So you had a feeling of decline, negativity. Crime rates were very high, so extreme right political parties could easily abuse the situation. And in 2000, the moment I, for the first time, ran for mayor, in fact, the extreme right was, was the biggest political party. And there was a kind of, let's say, very big negativity in Mechelen. Also, socially, people didn't trust each other anymore, didn't want to cooperate with the city, with new initiatives. So there was skepticism, negativity. And you see if the same process you saw in a lot of, let's say, European cities. So at that moment, it was a big challenge because I came from a political party that was never very strong in Mechelen. But I was a young guy, the new guy in town. And I think a lot of voters at that moment said, 
or we have to vote for extreme right, or we give that guy a last chance to solve the problem. So I knew that the big challenge was how can I make a success of the diversity in my city? How can I get it right again? And I knew that I had to find new approaches because the classical ones didn't tell up if I would follow the right-wing path. It would be shaming and blaming of people all the time, and that's not where I stand for in life and in politics. And if I would only follow the classical left solutions, it didn't work also. So I had to find a new way, a new path, and maybe a combination of things, very pragmatic, uh, trial and error, to get my city back on track. So one of the reasons why that's fascinating to me, we talked about this when we first met, mm-hmm. is that in my last book, The Great Experiment, I tried to think about what the challenges are which are posed by exactly that kind of demographic transformation, which you see at a smaller scale in Mechelen, but you see at a bigger scale in Belgium and Germany and mm-hmm. France and so many countries in Europe and beyond, which is you know that transformation from relatively historically homogeneous societies to much more diverse societies because of immigration. And I tried to come up with some solutions, but you were you know faced with this challenge in a very very concrete way in a very clear urban environment. So what did you do when you came in? And you were trying to get people to talk to each other more. You're trying to build some real sense of being citizens of a city together. You didn't think that emulating the policies of a far right would work. But as I understand it, you also didn't think that sort of denying the existence of a problem and so on, which some left-wing parties have done, would work. What concretely were your first steps? What promises did you make to voters? How did you try to deliver on them? I think there were a few bricks, if I could say it like that, to build a new house. And for me, because when I read your book, I had a kind of aha erlebnis. I told you that because you wrote down, let's say, approaches that without reading your book before, I think I was doing on the field. I give you the few most important things. For me, first of all, I had to restore a feeling of security. I had to invest in fighting crime because my conviction was that if I cannot show that it's for me a priority to create safe streets, then people will always see the city as a failure and they will always blame two groups. Of course, the politicians at City Hall are not doing their job. So we have to look for an extremist alternative, maybe. We have to give other people a chance, an opportunity to do it in their way. So that's a risk for democracy. And secondly, of course, who is to blame? And it will always be the other one. Of course, you will never blame yourself. So you will always say, yeah, that's due to the newcomers in town, the migrants. So you open the door for populists to abuse a kind of situation where there is uh, always problems on the street with gangs and with violence or with burglary or even intimidation and annoying people. So I had to tackle that. And I did it very offensively, also out of the box. I did it with more police. I did it with more control. I did it with being more strict. But I also did it with prevention, because only police and only, let's say, a repressive approach doesn't work. You have to try to convince people that it's the task of everybody to create that more safe city. And what does prevention look like? Because I think it's a term that's often invoked and it sounds great. Everybody's in favor of prevention. In medical context, much better to have a disease prevented than to experience it. In crime, of course, we prefer prevention to actually having to you know, arrest people and lock them up. What did that concretely look like and why did that work? A few examples, youth workers trying to mobilize, for example, sport clubs. We have a sport boxing club that brings in young kids often of a difficult background. 
to learn them to box. But there are two rules. One is if you fight on the street, you never enter the club again. And secondly, maybe very offensively, at the end of the month, you show your school report. And if it is not good, if the teacher's remarks, you will not practice for a week. So a kind of, let's say, trying to create a combination. If you want to be good at sport, try to do your best also at school. Second example, during holidays, young people can work for the city for one month earn some money and they have to play, let's say, the older brother or the sister uh, where at the playgrounds in town where they have the task of, let's say, keep an eye on the smaller ones and explain them that, uh, for example, at 10 o'clock, let's be quiet a little bit because people have to sleep. Don't destroy your playground. It's yours. Don't harass people. And so we did it every year, a few dozens. You have to know city is 90,000. So a few dozens on 10 years time, it's hundreds. And when I speak with them now, now they are older, of course, I started with it 20 years ago. They are now a father or mother themselves. And they say it was the first time in life that when you gave me the responsibility, I had to think about why are those rules there? Why is it necessary to do it? And I got the responsibility and I took it up. And also for the smaller ones, it's the first time they see the city not as a white policeman, being rather aggressive to them or very strict to them. No, it's the neighbor. It's maybe the nephew around the corner that's representing the city. So that's another example. But also, let's say, try to reach out to the parents. If a youngster did something wrong, we had a system, a new in Belgium. We brought the youngster, of course, to the police headquarters. But then we invited the parents. We explained what happened. And we made a small contract saying, if your kid stays out of trouble for the next six months, it's okay. But let's see what we can do together to keep him on track. Maybe it's only trying to give him a hobby or, let's say, family consulting to restore maybe the relations between child and parents. And that worked also. A last example, you have kind of doors that turn around all the time. If you go to a shop, you know, the classical turnaround doors. We speak about turnaround criminals. Youngsters or not so young people are caught by police, brought into court, they get a fine, they come out, they start again, and nothing changes. And it's frustrating for everybody. It's frustrating for society. It's frustrating for police, for the justice system. So what did we do? We identified the top 10 and we gave them an uncle policeman. So they had to report to him every week. It was very strict. All the police corps knew those are the guys, the troublemakers. So we controlled them very strongly. That was a little bit of stick. Also an agreement with the justice system that when they do one small thing wrong, they were brought immediately into court. But at the same time, there was also a carrot. We spoke with those guys, say, can we find a job for you? Can we find a school again for you if you're a minor? Do you have other problems where we can help? Because we thought if we can get those 10 back on track, then it has a big impact. And it worked also. So we tried a lot of trial and error things. There was a neighborhood, the last example, where there was a lot of not real criminality, but, you know, youngsters hanging out on the street during the night, making fuss all the time, aggressivity. We came to the neighborhood because it were minors and we brought parents together. And I said, listen, the police will come and it will be problematic for your kids because we have to find them or even put them in jail at a certain moment. So take up your responsibility. And we provided them of a small place where they could come together, those parents. And we asked them to be on the streets during the evening, taking up their parental responsibility. It was not an easy, let's say, conversation in the beginning, but we saw that experiment in Amsterdam. So we said, let's do it also with us. And fathers did it. And they walked around. They were present where their sons were and, and daughters. And so 
it had an impact. Of course, they, they didn't do it only a few months. And it was a, a big effort for them, and I thank them for that. But it changes the climate. So it was a lot of things, but always trying, also mobilizing society. And what I really did was be very, very clear that police wasn't there to have a special interest for a group in society, for a community in society. It had to be a very, let's say, open and clear thing that it's not a group that creates problems. It are always individuals that could create problems. So that was the first, for me, important thing. We'll get to some of the other mm -hmm. initiatives where yeah. we're more positive in mm -hmm. a way as well. Mm -hmm. but, you know, I think there's an instinct understandably among many people, to say, well, look, when we're talking about integration and we're talking about these changes, we're just talking about the challenges of big cities in the United States, you know, which experience a lot of crime. We don't want to talk too much about crime and security and so on, mm -hmm. because that's just going to blame people. It's just going to make it feel like we're assigning this kind of blame. And so in the United States at the moment, there's a big debate because crime has been rising for the last years. And there's an instinct, which you see again and again on parts of the left, to say, let's not talk about crime and let's quibble with the numbers. Let's try and make it sound like, you know, perhaps only violent crime has gone up, but not other kinds of crime. There's people who actually have written mm -hmm. that in a variety of forms. Why is somebody who really cares about that integration working and turning around Mechelen, making sure that the right-wing populists didn't win? Why do you think we need to tackle crime in this proactive way? Why is that the first step, even if there's other steps which have been to come? I think because the moment you, as a politician or as a, you look away, or as a mayor, you look away from the real situation and you try to minimize it because you're afraid that it could be abused in a way that people say, okay, you speak about crime, now you have to speak about it because now we, we become more diverse and that's the reason why it's a problem. If you look away at the moment from that problem and you don't solve it, it's like a cancer. It stays there and it's difficult to convince people for the positive things of it, to step away from that, let's say, communitarian or identitarian thinking about your city. That's the first thing. I went even so far that at a certain moment, more right-wing politicians said, look at the figures, be honest, Mayor. Youngsters with a migrant background, police have more negative contacts with them than with our Flemish Flemish eh, or Belgian Belgian kids. I agree. It's true. If you look to the statistics, we don't make statistics like that. But if you would make statistics, and we have, of course, kind of figures around it. And I said, it's even three times as much. But you have to know that Belgian kids, only 2% of them create troubles. And if you look to migrant kids, it's three times as much. It's only 6%. So 94% of them are doing very good. So by reasoning like that, you discriminate or you blame a big group that's doing fantastic in society that's positive. So I try to get through their arguments and try to convince them that I have no taboo. I speak about those things, but I also make clear that their story, their narrative is false, is negative. And the second reason why crime fighting for me and creating a safe environment is important because I see it as a social issue also. You know, I live in a middle-class neighborhood. My kids grew up in a middle-class neighborhood. Now they are already adults. But in my neighborhood, there are no gangs. There is no drug dealer around the corner. There is no graffiti everywhere. The public domain isn't destroyed. But if you live in a poor neighborhood and you are a father or a mother with two kids, 
it's much more difficult. So creating there also, let's say, a feeling of safety and the public domain that's safe for them and their kids, that's a social thing. You help in the first place those people. So I think it's the basic thing. Otherwise, people will look away, close themselves up. They will see the city as something hostile. They will not feel at home. They will not be ready to work together. To give you one figure, when I started as a mayor, there were only two streets in Mechelen that organized street festivities that brought the neighbors together. Now it's more than 100. And if you ask people why at that time, we didn't trust each other. There was a negativity, blaming all the time. And now, because it's turned around... Now you see that trust in citizenship and in your neighbor has grown enormously in Mechelen. We, we try to measure that in every city. It was the lowest in Mechelen 20 years ago. Now it's the highest. And also appreciation of people with an other cultural background. It was very low because people didn't feel at home. But now it's very high in Mechelen. So you see that one element, it's not the only one, that's one element, is important. One of the really interesting things you said is that, you know, you lived in a neighborhood where those problems weren't so present, but you were able to empathize with and understand what it felt like if you're in a neighborhood where it is a problem. I think that's the recurring theme in other places. Very interestingly, in New York, when you look at the primary election for mayor, the sort of more far left candidates who are more reluctant to speak about crime and so on, did very well on the Upper East Side, on the Upper West Side, which are much more affluent, predominantly white neighborhoods in which crime is very low. And Eric Adams, who campaigned against police violence, certainly understands the danger posed to non-white people by problems with the American police, but who was also himself a cop and who said, I want more cops in the neighborhood. I want good cops, but I want more cops. I want more security in the streets. He won the nomination ultimately because he did much better in the Bronx and in the poorer parts of Brooklyn, where those problems are really present. So I think that that's a really interesting point that you know, politicians... Yeah. By their nature, usually middle class, they usually live in neighborhoods where those problems don't exist. And so you have to actually understand what life is like for those others. But let's get to the more constructive parts of what you did, because you were saying, you know, we used to have these couple of street parties. And now we have a hundred of them where neighbors come together and they celebrate together and so on. So what were some of the steps you did once you took care of the security problem to say, we are going to invest in what some people call a narrative of us. We are going to create a sense of what it is to be a citizen of Mechelen, which is not defined in these communitarian, identitarian ways, where it's just about us natives and you newcomers. There's a second step, I think. First step, it's not chronologically, of course, you do it together. But the fundamental was what I taught, together with clean streets, but let's not stay there in the public domain, that it has to be a meeting place. But second thing is, how do you create a community in diversity is, of course, if you try to break down segregation. For me, that was a very important thing. I spoke with a lot of rather progressive people and they said, yeah, diversity is a good thing. It enriches your life, even a multicultural society. It's nice. It has advantages. And I completely agree. But I asked to them, how many people in your direct neighborhood, you know, with a different background in your group of friends, how many people with a foreign background come in your house and, and you talk with them? And then they had to admit that it was not so much. We lived in a kind of archipelago of monocultural islands. It was not a super diversity. It was physically sometimes, but also mentally. You always see the people of your background. 
there was not enough contact between people. And if there was contact, it was always a symbolic one. After a drama or whatever, you see always they bring a rabbi, an imam and a priest together saying that it's horrible and that we all have to be friends and we represent communities. But it was a very communitarian approach in reality, also in the city. But to be clear, because I think segregation yeah. means something slightly different in the Belgian context than it would in the yeah. United States, right? So you're not talking about a big part of town where 97% no. of people are immigrants, but no. you're saying you might live door to door. You might have some neighborhoods which are predominantly yeah, of that's true. Yeah. for a long time. You'll have some neighborhoods that are much more mixed. Yeah. But in the mixed neighborhood, you know, mm-hmm. you might have one store that's where the people who've been there a long time go, and then a store next door where immigrants and their descendants go. And so you're yeah. sort of moving past each other yeah. a little bit in what I would call the sort of Canadian model of, not the Canada's necessarily like this, but beloved and kind of a salad bowl of a mosaic, right, where you sort of have society as a whole be quite diverse, but it's not individuals who are mixing. It is these communities that are living next to each other, even if geographically, exactly. but often quite proximate. Exactly. I, I understand that segregation has, a, let's say, another uh, feeling in America than where we speak about, but it's exactly what you say. There were neighbors with dominantly, for example, we had a lot of people coming from Morocco, where a lot of people with a Moroccan background lived there. They created their own clubs, their own society, their own sport club, their own youth club. And there was not a lot of contact, in fact, between people with a different background, not in daily life. So, of course, what happens then, you get two negative things, I think. First of all is you get a kind of identitarian approach because you are closed up in a certain way in that community. And at a certain moment, that community starts defining themselves in contrast with the rest, eh, what makes us different from the other ones? So you get a kind of pressure even to stick to that group. Eh? You may not, <laughs> to say it very provocatively, you betrayal your way of life and what's important, our values and what's important for us. But a, a more important thing is also at a certain moment, leaders of those so-called communities, because I say so-called communities, because the diversity within those communities is extremely, because It are all individuals with different capacities or or ideas or convictions. They come to City Hall and they ask to speak with the mayor. I had experiences like that. They said, yeah, mayor, our group, for example, Assyrian Turks, Christian Turks, they came to me and a leader of them, a so-called leader, a self-defined leader, said, I need a community house because we want to bring our people together to keep our language vivid and keep our traditions vivid. And it's a very difficult thing for a mayor to say no at that time because you're immediately thinking, yeah, if I can do that, they will trust me, they will be happy with me, and maybe next time they will all vote for me. And that's a very negative way of looking to society. It's it's a little bit that you start thinking those people are kind of sheep and it's a flock and he's the shepherd and he will tell them what to do. And in the beginning, I said, oh, maybe I have to do it because they are just arrived in Mechelen a few years. They don't have their place already. Maybe I have to do it. But then I start talking with people there. Then we don't need that. We need a job. We need good education. We want to learn your language, the language of Belgium, as soon as possible because we want to get a future here. And if you follow that idea of let's try to make a communitarian approach, of course, that guy that comes to you and gets it done, he start to become a middleman between city hall and citizens. And you get a kind of policy that doesn't function very well. And he can ask and he will always say, 
I'm against that kind of segregated societies. I'm against that kind of living apart together. I want to bring people together. But his real interest is just keep them separately because then I have power. Then I'm an important guy. But nobody elected him. He says he represents groups. So for me, out of also a democratic legitimacy, it was difficult. I give you another example. We had an, a Moroccan youth club in Mechelen. And it started in the 70s. And the idea behind it was a very good idea. It was, let's give people a kind of proudness of who they are, youngsters, where they come from, that they understand their background, their culture very well. And then they are stronger towards stepping in society and be part of the society because you may never neglect who you are. You have to be proud of your roots. So I think that's a very good thing. But what happened in the youth group during time, of course, in the youth group, it was only... In fact, for Moroccans, only boys, no girls. There was a big poster of a mosque because they say every Moroccan is a Muslim. There was no alcohol because Moroccans don't drink alcohol. There was only Arabic music because Muslims only like to hear Arabic music. And when there was a Muslim feast, a Muslim happening, they organized it there. So people felt very good there. They feel very good at home, maybe also very good at the mosque. But when they walk through town, it's a strange town. And it's a caricature also, because if I have to do it with a Belgium, let's say I create a Belgian youth club, what do we have to do? Do we have to put a church poster there because we are all Christians? It's not true. Do we have to drink all the time beer because we are beer drinkers? Do I have only to listen to Dutch music? What music also? Do I only eat mulfrit? Of course not. And in that youth club, people are always trying to think what makes us different from the rest. So when I became mayor, I had the challenge. I have 130 nationalities. Do you have to create a street full of youth clubs for the Russians, the Romanians, the Turks? No, I have to change that youth club. It has to be open for all young people, but with respect for diversity and learn them that the differences in religion, in backgrounds, is not a problem because we have one layer. We are the same in one thing. That's one of our many identities is the same. Citizens of Mechelen. And let's invest in that. And you can only invest in it if you are respectful for everybody in town. So try to make a new we, a we that's not the monocultural we of the past, but embracing we. But you can only build it up with bringing people together. And a lot of politicians and also, let's say, scientists said to me it's impossible because it's a logical thing that people with the same background in a migration reality start to connect with each other at the first time because there's their network. And that's true. That's a natural thing that happens. And it takes one, two, three, four generations before people start to mingle up. But I want to foster up that process. So what I try to do is create programs that fasten up that connection with others. For example, in schools, you can choose your school yourself in Belgium. So what you see, you see schools with predominantly people with a migrant background and other schools with predominantly people with a Belgian background middle-class people. And then you get different that are good schools and the other ones are bad schools. So I try to convince parents to change school, not put your kid in a school far away, but put it in the school around the corner where maybe more migrant kids are at school. And what do parents say? They say, may we are open-minded, but my kid is not a social experiment. He will not do it because those other parents, they don't speak Dutch very well. They don't know our school system. So the quality 
will go down. And secondly, my kid will not feel at home. It will be the black swan in the classroom. So what did we do to break it down, try to change it? We brought groups of 15 parents together with the school director. And we said, listen, if you put all your kids with your 15 to that school, your kid will not be the only one in the classroom. There will be three, four, five out of 20 with the same background as your kid. So it will have connections. It will feel a little bit more safe and at home. And secondly, we will make the quality of the school better. We will invest in it. So in a short period of time, I could break down four schools where we're only kids with a migrant background. I could convince hundreds of parents. It takes time. It's work. It's not behind the desk. You have to start talking with them. We did the same with youth clubs. We did the same with neighborhoods where we invested in bringing back middle class because we believe that if you can bring back middle class in a, in a neighborhood, in a diverse neighborhood, you also bring more social capital, not only money, but social capital in that neighborhood that starts organizing the neighborhood again, brings people together, starts also complaining at City Hall, do something for our neighborhood. So that was something for me, the most important thing, in fact, was changing that. And to be honest, there is still, of course, more connection between people with the same background than, than otherwise. But the perception, at least, has changed. And there are much more contacts. And that allows people to say, OK, we are all citizens of this town because we are seen as one in diversity. One of the things that really strikes me when we have these conversations yeah. is that we get the same set of ideas from the very concrete experience that you have and at a more abstract level that I have. What's striking to me is that there's sort of three different models you could think about in terms of mm -hmm. integration. And so one is the melting pot. One is the idea that we should all ultimately be the same, right? That we create a new culture together, perhaps, but the resulting culture will there be influence of the original culture. But in the end, we all just are individual citizens of Mechelen and what our origins mm -hmm. are is not very important at all. And that, as you're pointing out, is too simplistic. It's important to know where you come from, and that's always going to be a reality for people, right? So then it's easy to jump to the second model that you described, where you have a Moroccan youth club and the this youth club and the that youth club, and you end up having these brokers of communities who say, I am the leader of a community, and for I might not be elected. And those people may not actually have that legitimacy. The people in the community may actually secretly dislike them or snigger at them mm -hmm. and say, oh, that guy, you know. But to be outside, they look like they're the leader of a community and they get the resources and so they get power within the community. And then you really don't get that sense of common feeling because you're defined yeah. as, oh, I'm part of this community. And so if you're a different community, I'm not even open to coming into contact with you. And the third thing that I think we should aim for is this hybrid identity, right? Where people continue to be influenced by where they're from, where they can be proud of that, where they can see some of that reflected in the city. There's mm -hmm. enough people with a similar background. But where they also start to make those connections, where they also start to have a genuine identity as a citizen of Mechelen or a citizen of Belgium or, or wherever else in the world that might be. So to me, that's really interesting as a concrete instantiation of that. What to you was a sign that citizens who perhaps earlier did not have that feeling of belonging was starting to take on that identity, that they're still rooted in their origins, but that they also started to make those connections and started to say, yes, I'm actually proud of being from Mechelen and so on. I completely agree with your analysis. I'm a very strong believer of the third model. I believe people have a lot of identities. I'm a citizen of Mechelen. I'm Belgian. I'm European. I'm a father. I don't like soccer. I like to read books. And every of those identities link me to other people. And identity is always the same thing. It creates a group of your own and it creates a distance from others. 
And the strange thing is that you always jump from one identity to another one. If I'm in New York, I will say I'm a European. When I'm in Berlin, I will say I'm Belgian. When I'm in Brussels, I will say I'm Flemish. And when I'm in my town, I will say I come from that part of town. So that's the way how we do it. We always look for the small difference because it's not interesting to me to say to you that I'm a European because you also have a European background. I will say I'm a Belgian because I know from you, you have a German background and now you live in the States. So you're always looking for what separates you. But at the same time, it gives you also the possibility to connect. So if I look to the city that, for example, my city exists out of people with a Moroccan background and a Belgian background, and Moroccans are the biggest migration group in my city, and I see the other one only as a Moroccan and nothing else, it's impossible to get linked because it will be two separate worlds, two separate universums even. But if I can see him as a neighbor, as a father also, as somebody who also likes to read a book, or maybe as the same profession as me, I get linked. So I try to create that model in town. And one of the things we did was saying we are proud of our diversity. Of, of course, you have to create a platform that includes people and not excludes. I can look in my history of town, in the identity of Mechelen, I can find things that excludes people all the time. It can create a normative image of my town where every newcomer, every person, even if he lives here already for 50 years, still is an outstander. So I try to do differently. Say We are proud of our diversity. We did a lot of things. We created symbols in the streets that refer to the migration. We have a, the darkest page in my town was during Second World War. We have a Holocaust Museum. Eh? Jews were brought to Mechelen. Old Belgian Jews were brought to Mechelen locked up in an army barrack inside town, and then they were brought to Auschwitz. So we use also that thing, of course, to remember that day, and it's called a Museum for Holocaust and Human Rights. So we emphasize that we never want to see that again. So it's also part of our history in town. So that's an important thing you have to do. And you have to always try to make clear that also within communities, there is diversity. Never close people up in that sort, but have respect for that diversity. That's another thing and make people proud of it. So when I felt, for example, the first time that they made a real difference, that was during the difficult years of ISIS, of the war in the Middle East, where a lot of young people out of Europe joined ISIS. And they were taken away in a kind of radicalization process. They radicalized. And then they joined a totalitarian, embraced a totalitarian AIT and went there. And out of Belgium, the biggest group of youngsters in percentage went to join ISIS. It was a failure. But out of my town, nobody did. And if you ask why, why could you stop them? Why could you prevent that thing? I think it has to do that people trusted City Hall as a city that embraces them, that makes them part of society. So they felt when they saw signals of youngsters getting radicalized, they went to town, they came to me, they came to the police saying that because they knew we didn't see them as enemies, but they knew that we first of all would try to protect them. And I used also that narrative to say we protected our kids against totalitarian thinking. And then Mohammed and Karel became our kids of, of everybody. When terrorist attack on Brussels happened, I went to the biggest mosque of Mechelen on Friday and people were together, 1,500 Muslims out of Mechelen, and they were afraid of the reaction of society because, yeah, that was a horrible attack at the airport. It was a terrorist attack. 
people died there. It's only 20 kilometers from Mechelen. So a lot of people of Mechelen worked also at the airport. So those people were afraid to say, what will be the reaction against the Muslims? Will there be programs? Will they want to throw us out? Will they shame and blame us on the streets? And I went there as a mayor and I said, listen very carefully. I am your mayor. You're my citizens. You're two times victim. Once, as everybody, afraid of getting killed by terrorists, afraid of that totalitarian regime. But secondly, you're also a victim because you're a Muslim, because those guys abuse your identity, your religious identity, to do horrible things. And now you feel that you have to excuse yourself for something you have not done. So I'm at your side. I will never accept that people turn against you. Of course, it was a very emotional moment, but those moments in the life of a city changes the view of people towards their city. It becomes much more their city at that moment. They see we are protected by it. We are seen as 100% citizens. Another very concrete example was on television that night of the terrorist attack, the testosterone boys, if I may say it like that. You can imagine young guys, always troublemakers, sometimes a little bit aggressive, not always on the right track, but also not real criminals, you know, that kinds of guys have a difficult youth and so on. They were looking at the television, looking at the politicians, giving their comments on the terrorist attack. And of course, every politician condemned it and said it's a shame and we have to bring them in court. Of course, we have to punish the terrorists. But, of course, the rhetoric became harder and harder and much more we, them, we, them. And, of course, at the end of the day, even nearly every Muslim was beginning to become a problem. And those guys, they felt it was about them. They speak about us. It comes in like that. And then they asked me, and I didn't know that those guys were looking, but out of my political look at society, I said, listen, a terrorist attack is horrible. We have to condemn it. We have to bring them in court. We have to bring them before court. They have to be punished. But we may never forget it are terrorists, but it are our terrorists, raised and born in our society, part of our society. So we have to bring them in court, but it are our terrorists. And why was that important? Because those guys, they were emotionally moved by it. They, they spoke with me. They said, we nearly had tears in our eyes because you said at the most difficult moments, at the moment that there is a conflict, you very clearly said that we are part of society. That you cannot say that if something happens like that, they are, in fact, at the end of the day, we are outsiders. Even if you live here for three generations, you're still not real part of society. You're a little bit second-class citizens. No, you said at the most difficult moment, you said the other thing. You said, no, we are part. It's one society. And we have to take care of it. They are not outsiders. So the last thing, for example, I always use it. I'm 17th generation citizen of Mechelen since 1520. Father to son, so 500 years Mechelen. But I say I'm the first generation citizen of a multicultural Mechelen. So I also have to integrate in that new reality. I also have to do efforts. It's not only people who are new in society or living only two generations in Mechelen to have to do efforts to be part of society. Society changes all the time and I have to adapt to new reality. So I also have to do efforts. So I try to create also an equilibrium between people. Not saying that people with a Mechelen background can sit down like a Roman emperor and say, he's doing well. No, I'm also in a process and I also have to adapt and do efforts to get that diversity and that unity in diversity. So I'm convinced by most of what you say. I have one source of mild skepticism, which comes from the strength of what you talk about, which is not we passed this regulation and this incentive and this law, 
you know, a lot of your stories are, we found this guy who's going to open the boxing gym. And at the beginning, I was a little skeptical of him, but, you know, I checked him out and he was really convincing. We gave him a chance and it worked out. Or, you know, there was this particular part of town where it was trouble, you know, went and found the parents and we said, can you go and be present in the square? And that is very convincing as a way to go. It seems to be dependent on two things. One, the scale of your town. This mm-hmm. feels much more doable, certainly for the mayor in a town of 90,000 people than it would be in a town of 2 million or 10 million, right? And the second is that it just takes somebody of vision and conviction and charisma and leadership to make that happen. So I'm trying Mm -hmm. to think, you know, there's hundreds of towns like Mechelen across Europe and across other kinds of democracies. And then there's cities that are much larger than that, from Paris to New York to Berlin to London and so on, right? If people are listening to this and then one of those places, how can they emulate this? Because we're not going to find, you know, hundreds of young, charismatic, really dynamic mayors in every town of Europe. We'll be lucky in some of them and, you know, we'll be less lucky in some others. And even if you have, you know, somebody similar in a big city like Paris, London, New York, which is not going to be able to worry about each square in the same way because there's just too many places to go and to be and they can't get to know everybody and so on in the same way. So how do we scale this? At the moment, I'm minister eh, of, of the Flemish government. So it's a region with 6.6 million inhabitants. A lot of it is urbanized. So what I now try to do, I made a contract with um, 20 cities to install uh, remedies we invented or created in Mechelen to bring them also to those cities. Because it's true what you say, of every city is different. And of course, we are a rather small city. You cannot compare us with Berlin or with Amsterdam or Brussels. But at the same time, people don't live in Berlin. What do I mean? They live in Neukölln. They live in a part of a city. They live in a neighborhood where there are schools and shops and clubs and streets and, and neighborhoods. And it's there that you change the reality. And so it's true that a bigger scale gives other challenges. But I'm convinced that the remedies we tried and also programs we invented to solve it can be not copied, but can be an inspirational source of working in that direction. It's also, let's say, the conceptual way of looking to your town. Are you prepared of investing your money in more concrete meeting places between people with different backgrounds? Are you prepared of investing in a public domain that really gives people the feeling that they belong and that you can exercise the fundamental thing that the city does that is uh, get in contact with people with another background with other ideas and uh, be free there so i really think that it can be done and i see also we measure that what's the impact i see progress to give you one example how it, it can roll out we created in Mechel a program that a newcomer in town gets a buddy and that buddy spends 40 hours together with that newcomer one hour a week Walking to Trump. So he can exercise his learning Dutch. He can exercise a little bit his Dutch, the language we speak. But at the same time, they speak about the city. He can explain that, for example, if a man and a woman comes on the street and they see each other and they give each other a kiss, that's not an invitation to have sex. That's the way how we greet in, in our country. What does it mean as a parent? If you have a kid at school in Flanders, in Belgium, what do I have to do as a parent? I come out of another country. I come out of another society. So we brought people like that together. 
The University of Leuven, the best university, or one of the best universities of Belgium and very internationally highly ranked university, examined the impact. And they said, if you have one people, one person out of your peer group, ethnic cultural peer group in your daily life, your chances on the labor market and housing market double because you get a network that helps you to integrate faster. So we did it in Mechelen. Now it's a law. I made it a law in Belgium. So every year we will have 10,000 buddies, people voluntary based, have a contact with a newcomer. The Dutch government in the Netherlands, the new government said, we have to do the system of Bartzomus, we have to do the system in Belgium. We also have to implement it in the Netherlands because that's the way to do, because it's not only interesting for the newcomer, also the guys out of our society who do that, it's also enriching themselves. They also change their view on the city, on people who live there. I had people who asked to be able to do that voluntary work for a newcomer, and they were rather conservative, right-wing. They said, I want to explain to them that they have to respect our values, they have to respect our society, they have to learn our language. But what happens? You can start with that kind of ideology, and you have a contact, but after three weeks, you sit down and have a tea, and you speak, and you ask to the guy, how do you feel? And he will tell that he feels lonely, that he misses his parents, in, that he had to run away, he's a, a political refugee, that he, he sees a lot of, of discrimination and racism. And you get friendship, because after those 40 hours, we ask them at City Hall, we give them a kind of reception and thank both for the good work, but they stay in touch. They become partners, they become a little bit family of each other, and they see each other at Christmas and maybe at another moment, and they invite each other at home and their kids become friends. So that's a simple example of what you can roll out. And we do it now in Flanders, and it's a big experiment, a great experiment of bringing people together to quote your book, but also now they are going to do it in the Netherlands. And, you know, within two years, in 2024, Belgium will be the president of the European Union. Every six months, it's another country. And then at that moment, ministers organize, let's say, big conferences. And I will do two. First of all, I will bring cities together out of Europe, bigger and smaller, to learn from each other, but also explain what could be a good thing to do. And secondly, I will bring for the first time in the history of the European Union, ministers together, not responsible for migration, but ministers who are responsible for integration and speak with them and also try to create programs around it. How can we fasten up that thing? Because, you know, the difference between the United States and Europe is, for us, it's relatively new. It's only 50 years that we are migrant countries. So we are in a process of, of accepting it and learn to live with it. And I only want to fasten up that process. The most confronting thing for me as a liberal, you know what it is? I'm a liberal in the European way of place. That university has examined that if you come in our country or you're part of the lower segments of the social ladder, it takes 80 years, four generations to get to middle class. Four generations. So if I tell the story... If you do your best, you use your talents, you get a better life. In fact, I'm lying because it takes too long. It's maybe for your grandchildren. And that's unacceptable. We have to fasten up the process. And I think that recipes I described can help in that. The only thing we didn't speak about, but I have to emphasize it also, if I speak about security, if I speak about fighting segregation in the way we defined it, for me, also fighting racism and discrimination is a very key thing also.
It has also to do with safety. It has also to do with acceptance. So we were always very strong in that, in also creating policies to combat discrimination and racism and be very outspoken and clear about it. What are effective policies on that in a concrete environment like Mechelen? What we did there, for example, of course, we have bystander programs. So we train people who want to do it that uh, if they see discrimination or they see racist behavior in the streets, that they react. It can be discrimination to gay people, but also people with a migrant background, that they don't step aside, but that they learn how can I intervene on a safe way? How What can I do? One example. Second example, we scan the housing market because there's a lot of discrimination in the labor market. We do it with, let's say, anonymous testing. A guy phones to somebody who wants to rent houses, and says that he has a migrant background, and two minutes later he phones again and he says, I have not a migrant background, and if there is discrimination, we can act on that. So we test that, we speak about that. In our police call, it was always a challenge to train them and invest a lot in non-discriminative behavior and acting. Also, as a city, we try to put it in our DNA that we are not like that. One of the things we use also, of course, we say that in a world of populism and in a world of negativity, there is that small island, that little village, that feeling that's also kind of the proudness of the city, that we are a little bit different in that. So it becomes city proudness. You know, there's an old guy at a certain moment when I became world mayor because the results we had as a city, we were very proud. This was not for me. It was for the city, of course, the prize. But the city before that, it was... Uh, I think Cape Town, then it was Mexico City, and now small Mechelen. So everybody was proud of it. There was an older guy that comes to me and says, somebody in his 70s, say, Mayor, we really can integrate very well, can't we? Maybe he hadn't done anything, but he identifies himself with that. Then I thought, now we are on the right track. Now we are winning. Because it yeah. becomes the identity of a town to be yeah, a place. Yeah, of course. Then people start, you cannot be a good citizen of Mechelen. Yeah, if you don't. Uh, let, let me ask yeah. you a last question. Try to scale this up even further. When you look at the national level where policy matters, but also rhetoric matters a lot, the rhetoric of national leaders and how they talk about their country and its future and mm. the role of diversity within that. What do you see people doing wrong and what would you recommend to people? Whether you're running to be Chancellor of Germany or Prime Minister of the United Kingdom or President of the United States, what do you think are some pitfalls that you've seen people fall into? You don't have to name them. And what do you wish that leaders at that level would emphasize more and talk about more? That's a question of 10 million euros or dollars because we live in an era of populism where people try to always create fear and a feeling of decline and uh, the feeling that it is going the wrong side and then uh, they like to strengthen that feeling and at a certain way when people are afraid of losing they are afraid that the future will be not bright but dark you can get people so far that they throw away the fundamental basis of a western open society and that they, for example, will give up freedom for security. And there was an American president that once said that uh, if you throw away freedom for security, you are not worth both of them. So that's what populists try to do. And of course, they use everything. They use on social media the smallest incident. One of their strongest weapons is identitarian thinking. The way against them that we are threatened, uh, the big replacement stories of uh, the onvolkung, the, the kind of, yeah, that those migrants are taking over and they change our way of life and we have to protect our traditions. And then they forget that... Uh, 
the most important tradition of the West is change. <laughs> That's the biggest tradition ever. I always say that, uh, do you know who changes our traditions the most? It's not migrants. It's, uh, for example, it's women. <laughs> because they changed all our traditions. At the moment, they asked that they could also go to work, have a job, have a vote, right to vote. And every time again, you see new groups changing traditions. So I think that what you have to do is try to create perspective, not in an irrational way, not in a naive way, but try to create positive perspective. But it starts with recognizing that diversity is not a walk through the park. It's work. It asks efforts. But try to emphasize that there is a positive perspective. And then you use role models. You know, classical left-wing and right-wing politicians agree on one thing. Role models are bad. Right-wing politicians, a role model, they don't like it because for them it contradicts their story that migrants are a problem and people with a foreign background or a different background are a problem. So they always say, yeah, you, you found one, but what with all the others? But the left-wing politicians do the same because they say the role model is undermining our story of our society is racist and structurally unjust and that you as a migrant, you don't have a perspective. So classical left-wing politicians are often very paternalistic and give a message all the time that that's also a negative one. And right-wing politicians are also, of course, very aggressive to diversity often. So I think that individual role models, of course, you may not say that there is not a problem anymore, but they give perspective, they give hope, they fight prejudices. So that's also one of the things I think a democratic politician that tries to make a success of an inclusive society needs to give perspective. And at this moment, with the energy crisis, the climate crisis, the way populists are abusing social media, it's a tough fight, but we have to fight it because... If we fight for diversity and for an open mind towards people with another background for their right place in society, in fact, we are fighting for our own, for ourselves, for the values we stand on. So that's what we have to try to do. And every country, every context is different. But at the end of the day, you cannot have freedom without diversity. You cannot have diversity without freedom. So those are really linked to each other. So if you are a politician that believes in a liberal society, your fight for diversity is a very important one, but never be naive, never make it a fairy tale. It's a difficult thing. It's not a walk to the park, but it can be done. Bart Sommers, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Very well. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces, 